Chaos looms, and darkness swiftly approaches. It's time to build your fires and defend the perimeter. Hey everyone, welcome back to the perimeter. This is episode six, and I'm joined today by Navy SEAL Rich Graham. He is the founder of Full Spectrum Warrior, uh, where he teaches life-saving and combat skills to civilians, military personnel, and law enforcement alike. Rich, thanks for coming on the show, brother. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Yeah, I know uh, you just got back from working with some SWAT team guys down in Mississippi. Um, how often are you working with law enforcement guys? Um, I know it's definitely uh, needed with a lot of various law enforcement agencies out there. Do they keep you pretty busy? Yeah, they do. I, I work with law enforcement not only here in the United States, but also um, pretty extensively down in Brazil. I've been working down there for about nine years now. Um, I probably head to Brazil every once once every month to month and a half uh, for a week. And then um, almost probably every other month, I'm working with a different SWAT team around the country. Uh, some of those SWAT teams we're working with, you know, a couple times a year. So it might not be a different SWAT team every month, you know, but there's uh, departments that I work with biannual or quarterly. Uh, but yeah, in between the, the training that we do with the civilians and um, the general public, we're doing quite a bit of training with different law enforcement departments. Yeah, I noticed that uh, jobs like that, especially with what you're doing, they don't seem to be slowing you guys down all that much with the uh, COVID-19 restrictions. No, not so much. And to be honest with you, with everything that's happened with COVID and just this, the nature of how everything's going, business has actually picked up. Um, even during COVID, when we had all these riots around the country and people blocking roads and, you know, uh, groups of people going into neighborhoods and basically intimidating the populations um, of these different areas. My phone just starts going off and, you know, people want to come here and they want to know how to defend their family. They want to know how to defend themselves. They want to know what happens if I'm in the vehicle. Um, so it's a, it's an unfortunate thing when shit gets crazy, but at the same time, um, from a business standpoint for teaching self-defense and, and um, tactics and stuff like that, it, it actually, you know, it's a pretty solid business. <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah, I can imagine that, especially with the current, you know, uh, high tension levels of the political and cultural climate going on right now, that you have quite a bit of civilians who are saying, hey, I need to know at least what to do if I ever catch myself in a situation uh, that will call for a specific type of training or some life-saving skills. Um, did that pick up over the last few years when things got very politically tense or has it been kind of steady? Yeah, it's, it definitely picked up. So what I've seen is, um, at least here in the States, the stuff in Brazil has stayed busy. Uh, and in some of the other places around the world that we go. But in, here in the United States, what I saw was during the Obama years, 
everyone was buying guns because they thought that the guns were going to be banned. And then as things started getting really politically charged, there was a lot of people who owned a lot of guns now. And I, I've received many phone calls from people like, hey, dude, you know, I went out and bought like 10 ARs or I bought this, this and this. And honestly, I've only shot them a couple of times. I really don't know what to do with them, how to set them up. Um, you know, I'm not very well versed on them. I got them because I didn't, I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to get them in the future. And now I've come to realize as things are getting crazier, like, wow, there might become a time where I actually need to use this. And I don't really know if I know how to uh, properly. So that's where the, the phone calls have, have uh, picked up from uh, as things got more political. And really once when people started seeing that, you know, this was coming to their cities, this was coming to their neighborhoods, this was coming to the highways, you know, it didn't matter where you were. Now, all of a sudden, you're in a situation in the middle of a highway. Um, you know, people just became worried and, and they want to know what they need to do to def to defend themselves and their families. Well, I'm really glad people are actually doing that because a lot of people think that if they just get a $2,000 rifle with $200 worth of do-it-yourself books that they'll figure out when really they could use a $200 rifle and about $2,000 worth of training. Yeah, you're spot on with that. And I mean, that's really where it comes into the the whole identity uh, and philosophy behind the full spectrum warrior. We have a lot of people who would come and be like, hey, dude, I want to run and gun and shoot like a Navy SEAL. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, OK, but if you truly understand, you know, the special forces community from a standpoint of uh, their effectiveness in fighting, on an individual level, one of the first thing you see is in every single one of these programs, regardless of the branch, there is an extensive physical criteria that must be met, right, before going into the, the combatives and the shooting and all this kind of stuff. So there's a mental fortitude and a decision-making, thought process, leadership, all that kind of stuff, team, all that aspect of it there's a mental aspect and there's a physical aspect and then once they develop those two eventually they teach you shooting and tactics and and all of those uh specifics so what happens with a lot of times is people come here and they want to run and gun like a navy seal and i have to educate them like look dude what we did in the seal teams is completely irrelevant to you you're not running around with 16 dudes you don't have air support if you get caught in the highway, you're probably not wearing body armor. You don't have 300 rounds of ammo. You know what I mean? You might have a what's in your pistol and an extra mag maybe, right? In the, in the other aspects, when you're working with, you know, a special forces team, you're not trying to run around with little kids to protect them. You know what I mean? So the, the nature of the fight is completely different and the tactics and techniques are going to be completely different. But... If you look at it on the individual level, right, you have your ability to shoot and your ability to to fight in that way. And then behind that, you have to be able to shoot in most civilian conflicts. It's very up close and personal. In a war zone standpoint, you've seen videos of guys on rooftops shooting rockets across a city. and They're shooting another building that's, you know, 600 yards away. And they're never going to go actually go to that building where 
if a dude's trying to rob you for your wallet or you get caught in one of those, um, you know, blockades where they block the highway, they're literally right there next to your car. Or if they want your wallet, they're right there next to you. So the conflict in the civilian realm is much, much more up close and personal. So we need to know how to fight, right? And if you're going to fight, you need to be fit. And if you're going to be fit, you need to have a certain lifestyle that supports that training regiment. You know what I mean? And then with all of that becomes, you know, situational awareness and tactics and all that stuff. And that's why we kind of call it the full spectrum warrior um, because it's not so simple as just, yeah, man, if you know how to shoot, you'll be fine. Like if it was that easy, then, you know, um, everyone, everyone would do it. You know what I mean? But it's a, it's a lifestyle and it's a, it's a philosophy that you have to, you know, um, enroll in and execute on a daily basis or a weekly, monthly basis kind of thing. You know, it's not just a check the box and you're good kind of, kind of thing. Yeah. Those skills are perishable. You know, if you don't That's use them, you do lose them. And one thing that, yeah. uh, one thing that kind of stands out to me is that when people come to guys like you or any other type training program out there, uh, again, they want to, like you said, I want to run and gun like the Navy SEALs when you guys are trained to run to gunfire and in a situation where you're out with your wife and your kids, you don't want to tow them right behind you to the gunfire. You want to know how to react to that gunfire, disable a threat if necessary, but if not necessary, get the hell out without losing any life. Yes. Yep, and that changes that changes the tactics um, in a in a big sense of even like with what you're talking about when we look at executive protection. There's different executive protection tactics to where I am a hired bodyguard, right? I'm expecting something. I'm on the lookout. I'm wearing body armor underneath my suit or my clothing, and that is my job. I'm not paying attention to paying attention to general conversations. It's not my business. You know, if it's a politician or something, they're doing their thing. And my, I'm not supposed to be eavesdropping in. I'm supposed to be focused on what's happening around us. Right. Where, when you're with your family, your family wants your attention. You, you can't be totally focused on everything else around you. So concerned about being the protector that you miss out on what's happening with your family on a daily basis. Right. And if you're not wearing body armor and, and those kind of things when something happens, whereas an executive protection guy, your job is to be, essentially call it being like the bullet sponge. Like your job is to stand between you and the threat and your body armor is their protection. Does that make sense? Whereas if, if you have no body armor on and you're talking about a civilian environment, throwing your wife or your kid directly behind you might not be the best situation, might not be the best tactic because if you get shot, they might get shot, depending on what the weapon system is. You know what I mean? Um, so in that case, sometimes it's better to shove them to the side and you take on the, the threat this way and basically um, deflect the attention away from them. So there's different types of tactics and techniques. And what we see used for the, um, for the military or the contract security world, a lot of that stuff people will see and go, oh, man, that's what I need to do but all that stuff doesn't necessarily translate over you know 
exactly to what would be realistic for you trying to protect your family. Yeah, it seems like uh, everyone gets into that mindset of I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this. Um, and it's based off of the perceptions of tactics that they don't see in movies because you don't see, you know, in the movies, unless it's, you know, the special forces guy who is out at the mall with his family and the Russian terrorists take over the mall or whatever. You never see um, those kind of tactics portrayed in the movies that these guys will watch that. I mean, hell, I watch them too, but they don't realize that the majority of it, and I, everybody's guilty of this unless they start learning the difference. But the majority of it is just knowing what the hell's going on around you. And you were mentioning that, uh, you know, your, your family wants your attention uh, and you can't be constantly, you know, at threat level red, looking around, you know, walking and bounding overwatch or whatever uh, when you're getting pizza and ice cream. But still, at the same time, you also can't be the guy who's so distracted. You don't know what the hell else is going on around you. And you don't notice the guy coming in with a gun in his hand. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And that goes into your your situational awareness as far as the first thing you can do is set the odds in your favor. So, for example, if I had my girlfriend or my kid with me, maybe I don't go to the place that has the bar that's one block away that I know, okay, we're going to, we, man, you know, it's late, we're traveling or we got a late day and it's nine 30 at night and we're going to try to catch this restaurant before they close. But I know when I get out of this restaurant, it's going to be like 10 30, 11 o'clock at night. And there's a bar that usually draws like a lot of, you know, just total assholes, like two blocks away. And it's between there and the college. And these people always walk this route back. So just from a situational awareness standpoint and a improv planning standpoint, you might go, yeah, you know what? We could go to this restaurant, but it's a Friday night or a Thursday night. And there's a very high probability when we leave, there's going to be a bunch of assholes coming down the sidewalk, you know, and, and I know they're going to cat call my wife. Um, you know, and I don't want to put myself in that situation where I have to, you know, stick up for her, you know, in, in front of my child, you know what I mean? And instead you go, well, you know what, there's, um, there's a, a Denny's or there's a diner that's, you know, just off on this County road. That's another three miles down the road. It's just outside the city. And, um, there's no bars or anything like that. And it's not going to be a big deal. It's a lot more quiet at this time at night. Maybe we'll just go there tonight where if it was a Tuesday night, maybe we'd go to that restaurant. But considering it's a Thursday or Friday night, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to decrease the odds. I'm going to run into some trouble. And um, and that's where you get into, you know, situational awareness, proper judgment calls, threat assessment, and putting your pride and ego to the side a little bit, you know, of what's best for the overall picture. Because if you play the not to live in fear, but you can make little decisions like that to put the odds in your favor that you're going to avoid some of that stuff. Whereas if you were just going out with a couple of your buddies and it was a Thursday night and you're like, whatever, you know, and if you walk by someone, you know, they're not going to necessarily cat call or anything like that. And if you're in a situation where you feel you can need to be, you know, defensive or whatever. Um, but just even little things like 
you know, in that aspect, you can do that, put the odds in your favor to where you then don't have to be on level, you know, four or five, you know, while you're trying to have dinner with your family um, because you're worried about the people who are next door. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think I, 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 I do that. Um, I do with it with my kids, and it's one of those where I know they're going to go out on Friday night. I know they're going to go out on Saturday night with their friends. But uh, at the same time, I always need to know where they're going to go. And if they say, well, we wanted to go to the mall, well, I pay attention to what's going on in my local area. Well, the mall's had some issue uh, these past couple of weeks. Go somewhere else. And it's not saying, you know, the mall's a bad place to go, but until we start to see a pattern of things being calm over there, there's a more likelihood that being there, you could end up in a situation you don't need to be in. I like how you said that, though, stacking the odds in your favor. Um, just by doing a little bit of prep work, you know, what side of town it's on, um, how close it is to other things. Oh, well, this place is nice. It's on a good side of town, but there, there's also a sports arena there. There's a big game. People drink at that game. People are going to be belligerent, probably fighting, getting mad because their team lost when they come out. Maybe we don't go there because there's road raids incidents. There's drunk driving incidents, whatever. Let's go somewhere else instead. I really like that. Yeah, so we'll even do one when we like on our uh, online university. We have a, a section on there that's for situational awareness, and one of the one of the courses there is for parking lot security, for example. So let's say you're going to a new town, you don't know this area very well, and let's just use Walmart for example because I know they have lots of video cameras. So maybe you come into the Walmart and you take one lap around the parking lot, and um, and it's just, this is an area you're not familiar with, right? So like when I'm, when I coach some of my buddies, daughters who are leaving to go to college and stuff like, and it's like, Hey, you know, I know this seems a little overkill and dad's being worrisome, but here's the deal. Show up to Walmart, just do a lap around the parking lot. As you're doing the lap, see what kind of people are hanging out and you're going to look for the video cameras. Walmart has tons of video cameras. See where the video cameras are. And then as you're going, you're going to do one lap so you can see the flow of the parking lot and who's there and where the video cameras are. On the little lap back, you're then going to find your parking spot and you're going to park it in a section that is open that has a video camera aimed at that section of the parking lot. So most of these cameras are closest to the building. So if we find a spot that has one of the floodlights and has a... Um, a video camera pointed at that area, that is going to be a less likely spot for someone who's going to try to commit a crime on you to do it on video. They'll try to do a spot because no one wants to do a crime once. They want to get away with it. So the criminal is going to stack the odds in their favor of not getting caught. So they don't want to be caught on camera. The other thing we could do is now when you go to park, depending on what you're getting, depends if you're going to park you know, uh, nose out or trunk out. So if I know I'm getting a lot of groceries, I'm going to be loading up the back of the car. I don't want to do that in between multiple cars. So I park with the trunk facing out. So I'm out in the open at that video camera. So the video camera can see me while I'm loading trunk. If it's just, I'm getting one thing and I'm not going to be 
that trunk and I want to be able to get in and get out, then I'll park with the nose out so you can just walk up, get in your car really quick and, you know, not have a lot of um, distraction time and you can you can leave, uh, you know, easily. But regardless, it's just one little thing of just doing a circle around the parking lot. You don't know the area. You don't know the people. Just take the extra two minutes to just one lap and look where the cameras are. Find the appropriate spot to park. Go there. Put your car in the position to put the odds again in your favor for your for your best exit. And uh, it goes a long way. So little simple things like that. But that goes into you do that and you continue to make decisions like those. And you may never wind up having one of these incidents ever happen to you because you put yourself in the position to where you're you're not going to be the victim. You know what I mean? Because you're not the easy target. Um, and, and that goes uh, that goes a huge long way. And it's one of those things you can't quantify because if the attacker never attacks you, you never you can't like check the box on it. But at the same time, you know. Um, it's one of those things that you do these these methods and you see who actually gets attacked. And a lot of times, unless it's just that random, crazy, you know, like active shooter style attack that it doesn't matter what you do, the, the, the dude's on a suicide mission. So that is just, those are just, it is what it is, you know, and you have to be ready to react and respond accordingly. But for your, your, your daily crime methodology, like little things like this go a long way. Do you get a lot of people um, that come to you for this type of training specifically looking for, hey, what do I do if there's an active shooter or what do I do to just make sure I'm safe? Because everybody gets kind of bogged down with the news stories of there was an active shooter at this mall. There was one at this mall. There was one at this mall. There was one at this movie theater. There was one here and there. Boom, 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 boom. Does those kind of news stories, uh, do they play into uh, like fluctuations in the amount of clientele and requests that you get for training or is, uh, do they, is it more generalized where I just want to be able to keep myself and my family safe? So on an individual level, it's not so much about the active shooter stuff where I've done a lot of the active shooter stuff is for corporate, um, like, uh, big corporate companies where we come in and they have a call center and they have 300 people on staff in the building or some of the big churches or synagogues who are worried about, you know, uh, active shooters coming in for like religious attacks and, and whatnot. So that's more on how do you respond? What do you do? And we have a whole program and methodology for that. Um, but that's normally the active shooter is is more inside like the bigger scale, like where there's lots of people. And it's usually the organization that's hiring because they want their staff and their employees or their congregation to know what to do in case something happens. On an individual level, like people will ask about active shooter stuff, but it's usually a little bit more specific to in general, if someone tries to attack me or rob me or, or you know, whatever, what do I do? How do I handle myself? I got you. The reason I was asking that question is because a lot of people, um, they get really reactive to things. Um, it's part of the reason why I don't watch the news. Uh, Cause people t- will tend to react to those kinds of stories. 
And especially with the, you know, like you were mentioning earlier, the protests and the big blockades where they're dragging people out of cars, kind of like what happened to the guy uh, in the L.A. riots when he was pulled out of his truck and beaten to death. Um, I'm pretty sure one of the things that you guys will cover in that is uh, never get out of the car uh, by choice anyway. But uh, I just I, I was asking because I feel like a lot of people at least the way I look at things would be specifically geared towards that because it's one of the things that get kind of blasted through the media outlets uh, all the time, regardless of what side of the gun control issue you're on. A lot of people are legitimately terrified of active shooters as they should be, because like you said, it's that random crazy, you can't hedge your bets against. And it's one of those where, um, if it happens, you just have to be able to react to it. Um, what are some of the things that you teach and uh, yep. go through with uh, the clientele that come to you uh, that are looking for the more generalized security? So, I mean, for the generalized security, uh that's going to be different depending on everyone, depending where they live and well, what is the threat in your region? What is a threat on your circumstance? You know, your personal life situations that have happened to you, everyone's going to have like a little bit different, you know, um, type of threat. But the first thing that comes to play is, is, is your situational awareness. And again, that's going to be one of the biggest things because when your situational awareness is down, then it makes you easier to uh, to be, you know, taken on as a victim, or be manipulated or taken advantage of. So the or caught off guard, you know. So the situational awareness is big. Then going into, can you competently uh, manage your from a firearm standpoint? Can you manage your firearm um, under stress? Can you shoot accurately? Uh, and one of the big ones that I focus on early on with shooters is your muzzle discipline and your weapons handling. If you look at the weapons handling aspect of it, most of us go to the shooting range and you got your gun in the box and you put it on the table. You open up, put your gun on the on the little tray. You put your box back behind. You shoot your targets. You put the gun back on the tray, come over, put it back in the box and you take it home. You know what I mean? So most people have never really moved with the weapon in their hands. You go to the shooting range, you go to a lot of courses, and it's like, hey, guys, you got to face down range. And if you're not facing down range, the gun's in your holster. You know what I mean? Or uh, it's sitting on the table. So a lot of times you don't get the opportunity to move with, with this weapon. So we spend a lot of time in the beginning doing different dry fire drills and stuff where we're working muzzle discipline and moving around a crowd, moving through people and all this stuff. Um, so when you're trying to move around your kids or your family and everyone's freaking out and you're trying to navigate everyone or you're working through the vehicle, uh, or anything like that, you're aware of where your, your weapon is pointed. You're aware of what your trigger finger is doing. And in that way, under stress, you start to build the dexterity and, and the awareness of how to move with that weapon out, not in a holster, until it's you're ready to actually utilize it or engage a threat with it or whatever, or ready to put it back. Um, I think it's a very important skill that is extremely neglected within the firearms community. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I've seen people get completely thrown out of ranges just simply because they turned a certain way. Um, they're very strict on how you move, where your muzzle is located or uh, directed towards. Um, with everything that you've just gone through with what you teach and what you focus on, you obviously did uh, a lot of uh, combat related actions and combat related training in the SEALs. You've done the executive protection details. What made you want to bring what you learned and all of your experience there and bring it into uh, the civilian side of things? I mean, was it something that you saw culturally shifting or were you like uh, a lot of guys I know who get out of the military and it's the only thing they're good at. So they just decide they're going to keep doing it. <clears throat> yeah, it was, it was actually, I didn't choose to get out of the military. It was my time got cut short. I threw a blood clot in my uh, brachial vein, like right here between my collarbone and my first rib. And they couldn't fix the clot. They tried to do a surgery. They removed my first rib, so they cut through my armpit and took my top rib out, hoping it would relieve the clot. They weren't able to fix it. I still have a 96% blockage there. And at that point, the Navy wouldn't sign off on my jump or dive physical uh, because they thought the pressure change could dislodge the clot and give me an aneurysm since it's sitting like four inches from my heart. So <clears throat> with that being said, all of a sudden, I found myself out of the Navy, and I was like, shit, now what do I do? And um, before going into the Navy, I'd given up some scholarships that I had for architecture. And I was considering, do I go back, do I go to school and actually go do this architecture thing? Um, and at that time, I just started personal training just to make some money while I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And while I started doing the personal training, there were some people who were clients or people at the gym who were like, hey, man, you, you, you were a Navy SEAL. Could you, could you teach me how my wife how to shoot our revolver? Or, hey, could you give my dad a lesson on, on his pistol? And on the side, I just started doing a couple of lessons here and there, you know, and then that turned into a couple of police departments reaching out. Hey, Rich, can you come work with our guys? And I started doing the firearms training then on the side just for – just for fun, you know, not even really as a business uh, for about the next four years, just, just because I enjoyed it. And then um, after doing that for a few years, I, I just realized, I was like, what if I actually just did this as a business? And I kind of just shifted gears and uh, I've been doing that full time now. So I've been training since 2009, 2008, 2009. And then in 2014, I made the change and uh, I decided I'm going to actually treat this like a business. And um, I've been doing it full time since then. But it was kind of one of those things where it just kind of found me. And I enjoy doing it. I enjoy working with people. Um, yeah. And it's just kind of found my niche. It's always great when stuff like that, it, it, it falls into your lap and it just feels so natural. It's like every entrepreneur's dream. You know, I'm good at this. I enjoy doing it. It's fun. And people want to pay me to do it. Those things are very rare. So I really dig it. Do you guys employ other yeah. uh, veterans yeah. out? Do you <laughs> do you actively seek out those new uh, those new newly ETS guys? Yeah, we actually work with 
Um, so not only with my company, with what we have a nonprofit um, Homefront Canine Project, which trains up service dogs for special forces families and um, on occasion special case for disabled veterans outside of that community. And um, we ha- try to hire for the dog trainers and the dog breeders. We try to find people who are uh, uh, veterans also and employ them as uh, as some of the trainers and coaches. Um, and then through the, uh, the firearms training stuff, I'll bring in a lot of the guys who are, are other SEALs or other different backgrounds. And these guys will come in and help me instruct. And do some of the stuff that I do outside of the country. Some of these guys will either come with me or I'll send them down to go work with different departments, you know, on my behalf, um, when I can't go. So yeah, yeah. We try where we can to, to hire different veterans and support, uh, those guys. I really like that. Uh, I know a lot of guys who do uh, combat arms, MOSs, when they get out of the military, their job uh, prospects are very limited. You know, it's, uh, well, I know how to kick in a door. I know how to repel. You know, I know how to shoot. Uh, So, yeah, give me this job in this cubicle farm um, pushing paper all day. And it's soul crushing to a lot of them because they feel like a piece of their life is just cut off from them. So it's really cool that you guys do that, man. Yeah. And I think on that too, and I've talked with a lot of guys and I know this is kind of like sounds stupid coming from me because I'm still in the firearms world working and and training, you know, um, in the, in a similar field to what I did before. So it's kind of like people can pass this off as like, that's easy for you to say, Rich. But the reality is there are certain traits and and this might not be for a military guy. This could be a dude who played college football. You know what I mean? You played college football. You were in a stadium with hundreds of thousands of people cheering for you. You know what I mean? You were super important. And then you blow your knee out and now you're not going to the NFL. Your college football days are done, and here you are, 24 years old, 25 years old, 30 years old, and you're like, I used to stand in a stadium with 100,000 people cheering for me, and now I'm selling car insurance, and no one knows who I am. No one gives a shit who I am. You know, like, that's how you feel, you know, and the what's important for us to understand is that attributes about your character that allowed you to play at a college football level not just your not your physical fitness but the dedication your focus the 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 things that allowed you to develop yourself to be an all-star athlete like there's certain characteristics or certain character traits that you have that put you in that position there's certain characters characteristics and personality traits that allowed you to work at that elite level within college sports, right? If you take away what the specific job is, the job is just a job. That's where your stuff gets shown. You know what I mean? It's just like they say, like the champion is recognized in the ring, but they're true. The champion was really in all the 180 days, the th- 10 years training to fight that championship fight. They just got the belt that day. You know what I mean? So the reality is everything you do behind the scenes that develop that character, you could apply that to whatever you want. That's interchangeable. You take that same worth act, 
ethic and you take those same success principles and you put it into any type of job and most likely you're going to win. You know what I mean? So then you just have to figure out where do you want to apply yourself and not get attached to, well, what is the job title, right? Now it's just, well, what is the mission and how do I take that and apply what I'm good at? How do I take my skills and abilities and put that? Because a lot of guys go, well, man, you know, I used to be a bomb disposal guy and I used to disarm bombs. Well, now what, what the hell do I do? There's not too many bombs to, you know, undo here in, in my town. It's like, okay, cool. Well, the, the, the dismantling or disarming of a bomb, I would qualify that or classify that as a technical skill. That's like the least bit, like anyone can learn how to do that aspect of it. It's all the other stuff that's super important. You know what I mean? You could teach anyone a technical skill. That's why what I was saying is, you know, they have all these guys who want to, who want to run and gun and shoot like a Navy SEAL. It's like, dude, I can teach anyone to shoot really accurate. Shooting accurate is the easiest part of the puzzle. It's all the other stuff that's super important. And then the shooting accurate is the technical skill part. That's just like the little tiny nuance. So I think if people understand that and can recognize that in, in their life, they set themselves up to be much more successful. I agree. Uh, was that something that you faced early on when you were suddenly and abruptly uh, let go from the Navy? Was it something that you were able to comprehend right away? Like, okay, I know what got me here to the SEALs. I know what got me onto the teams. All I have to do is just shift the perspective of the mission and go from there. Or did you have what, I mean, I would probably have, uh, the moment of, okay, my life is now different and I don't know what to do. I know, I know you just kind of covered that briefly with going into the personal training and all that. But was there a mental struggle that you went through with that first separation from the military? And if there was, how did you deal with that? Yeah, there was. I was super pissed. You know, I was, <laughs> I was so mad. I was furious because I was, I was sent home. Like I was basically cut out. And meanwhile, I have dudes who I served with who got their leg blown off and they were going back overseas with a prosthetic leg. And I'm like, he can go with no leg. And you guys are worried about my stupid blood clot. Like, come on, man. And you're looking at me and you're like, he looks fine. What's wrong with him? You know what I mean? But as, as far as the doctors were concerned, you know, too bad. You can't do it. Just like if you're colorblind, you can't work around explosives if you're colorblind because explosives are color coordinated. You know what I mean? So, or if you have really bad vision or if you have some sleep disorder, like there's certain things that disqualify you from certain jobs. And now all of a sudden I was disqualified. Although I felt like, you know, I'm fine. I can do this, you know, from their standpoint, no, you can't. So that took the first part was me accepting that this is what it is, you know, and I got to you know, my dream job. And now it was just taken away from me. So there was a, a little time there where I was just really mad about it. And, um, and then as I started working as a personal trainer at first being a personal trainer, it was all about me. And let me show you how awesome I am. And I very 
quickly realized that the people I was training, they wanted to lose like 30 pounds. They didn't want to be Navy SEALs. You know, <laughs> so I had to chill out a little bit. I was a little too intense at first. <laughs> and then I started to realize, dude, you know what? This isn't about me anymore. This is about helping that individual reach their goal. My goal is my goal. Their goal is their goal. And my job is it's not about me anymore. It's about helping them get to their goal. And I have to stop being selfish and fucking prideful and take a step back and do my job. And my job is that. And as I started to do that and work with people and help them reach their goals and meet them at where they were, you know, this is just kind of a process. It's, I started to realize, you know, and things started to come together at the same time. I started to, I started to take a walk as far as my, my faith goes um, so that was part of this. So it was like an incremental thing in phases. It was just kind of like just peeling back the layer of the onion. And I went from being like really mad to kind of accepting where it was and then trying to seek understanding of what my new purpose was, what was my new mission. And then I started to realize, dude, you know what? I can be successful in whatever I'm going to do. And then I, I, through that process, I also realized like, Hey dude, you're not the only asshole who's feeling like this. You know what I mean? And when I, some of the people that I was training were, were used to be professional athletes or were Olympic athletes and they were running into the same thing that I was running in, you know, they had built their entire identity into this sport and then now they can't play the sport anymore. And now I'm helping them rehab and stuff. And it's like, you know, we're not the only one. And as I was coaching them, I was like coaching myself. You know what I mean? As I'm helping them get to their new goal, I'm starting to have realization like the shit that I'm saying to them, like, Hey Rich, you might want to say that to yourself too, dude. You know, like that could help you if you want to take your own advice for a minute, you know? And so helping some of these other people helped, helped me come to terms with some of that. And then just over the years I've kind of matured into it and kind of just got a better perspective on it. Yeah, it's funny how that works. I know when you're teaching something to someone else, you end up learning it better yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that too was I have all these, I've had a lot of people over the years say to me like, oh man, the Navy made you into a Navy SEAL. And it's, and as I started to think about it, I was like, did they, you know, because the SEALs go to uh, like Ironman competitions and they'll recruit like the people who got like the number one spots, they'll go to mixed martial arts and like uh, collegiate wrestlers or swimmers and people who are the best. And they'll start recruiting like the best athletes from all these different schools in different areas and try to bring them into the program. And then you know what happens? A lot of these people, they get there and they quit. And it's like, okay, well, why are these super athletes quitting? Because they didn't, the mentality wasn't there. And it's not about who's the best athlete. It's about being mentally strong. And sometimes when you're the best in your field, you've never actually been challenged because you were always the best, if that makes sense. So a lot of these people don't know how to, under, how to, how to process failure. It would be like, hey, let's take someone who's a really good football player and let's go have them try to play hockey. And let's see how they handle sucking at hockey. Let's see if they can get good at hockey, at least good enough to play competitive. Maybe they're not going to be the best hockey player, but let's just see how they handle this stress. So you change the game and some people break, right? 
you change the game and some people thrive or they get by or it doesn't matter. You can give them any game and they'll do okay at it um, because the mentality is there. But what I started to realize when I was looking at this stuff is like, I, I explain it like this. If you were mining for gold, and I don't know if this is mining. Is it mining if you do like the thing with the pan in the in the river? Is that mining? That's not mining. I think, I think it's just called panning. Panning? <laughs> panning. All right. So panning for gold. You take your shovel, you sh shove a uh, shovel full of earth into the pan. In that pan, there's already gold and there's dirt, there's sand, there's water. Everything that's in that pan is already there. You doing the panning doesn't make gold. All it does is identify the gold. So if you look at all the people going to the SEAL program, you have 300 people standing on the beach. Some of them are sand, some of them are mud, as it relates to this specific job, not them on a personal level, but as it relates to this specific job. And some of them are gold. So you sift it out. You didn't create them, you identified them. Then you took a piece of gold, which was already gold. It had the characteristics that you wanted. And then you send that to the jeweler. And what the jeweler, this would be like the SEAL teams. This would be like your experiences. The jeweler takes a piece of gold, which has the attributes and the characteristics that you want. And now you mold it and shape it to make it look the way you want it to look. Right? But it's still gold. You just change the shape. So that's what I'm saying in this is the people, when you find out what your niche is, right? There's things that I suck at. So if we were to change the category, maybe like computer stuff, I suck at techno, techno, like tech stuff. So if we went to go do computer shit, I am not a piece of gold in computer stuff. So the, the other dude is like a total computer whiz. In that pan, he might be gold in that, but you put him on the, the, the beach to go through the SEAL training, and he's a piece of mud. You know what I mean? So when you find what your what your niche is, like now you have the attributes need attributes needed for that, and now all you get to do is mold that into a better version of yourself for that specific you know way of life for that specific job or whatever it is if, if, if I'm if that's tracking. So so in that the Navy didn't make me the Navy molded molded me, but I brought those specific um, characteristics to the table and so did the other guys that I served with and the other people who were on the beach who walked away and quit for that specific job, they didn't bring those characteristics to the table. So when you understand that, then it empowers you a little bit to go, you know, take the Navy away and it's like, I didn't lose myself. I'm still me. And I can take that same, you know, piece of gold and mold it to the next thing and be successful there as well. That has to be the best friggin' analogy that I have ever heard. The panning for gold analogy. That is, <laughs> that is man, that nailed it. Yeah, at, at first I thought you were being really cocky when you said, did they make me a Navy SEAL? But no, it, it really does make sense. Um, I didn't know that the Navy went to the Iron Man and the Strong Man and uh, the uh, MMA events and recruited the top or tried to recruit the top athletes. Um, I would imagine not very many of them would be able to be willing to just jump on that. Like, yeah, sure. I'll give up all of the glory I currently have now uh, as the best in my field 
to go and get yelled at by a bunch of dudes and who were going to try to drown me in a freezing cold ocean in San Diego <laughs> Bay. But uh, it makes a whole lot of sense now that because there is something very unique about the special forces community. And I've had the absolute honor of meeting in person a few uh, that have been uh, members of that community. And I won't name them now because they're still in, but there's something about them that is unquantifiable. And it's that I'm, I'm probably going to kill myself because I'm so stubborn. I won't realize that I'm dying if I'm trying to get something done. Just energy about them. And I think that's incredible. Um, I see a lot of that in, you know, the, uh, the self-improvement community and some of the guys that I'm friends with, um, like they recently got me into the ice baths. Now I will say that I have yeah, a tendency yeah. to never do anything easy. And I was very proud of myself for my very first attempt. Uh, even though it took me five minutes to get in the tub, I sat there for 20 minutes, uh, and then I and then I Googled it and read that I shouldn't do more than 15. But, but uh, I had to do that to prove it to myself. And by no means am I do I think I'm capable of, you know, being a Navy SEAL or anything like that. But I think it's that little nugget of I have to do it because if I don't, I'm going to completely crap all over myself for chickening out or wussing out of it. And that's that's really rare today in this hyper comfortable world where everything is just on demand comfort. Yeah, I totally agree. And there's something to be said, you know, um, in just your training or just things in general to do that gets you out of your comfort zone and challenges you like you shouldn't have to do every single workout every single day. And your goal is to just to destroy yourself because that's not productive. You know what I mean? Um, your workouts are supposed to build you, not break you down. But then again, there's every now and then you got to do something that really tests your, your mental fortitude and you got to do it for yourself. So like you're talking about the cold water immersion, there's health benefits to it, but it, if anything, like for years, I've been doing the cold weather water immersion and I didn't realize that there was health benefits to it. I was just doing it because it was my chance to just challenge myself mentally, you know, and take myself back to when, you know, uh, you're, everything's telling you to stop and you have to just shut your brain off and just deal with it. Like it's the cold water is a very interesting thing because it's one of the main things that makes people quit SEAL training. And it's one of the it's physically one of the easiest things you have to do in the entire training. Cause all you have to do is just sit still, sit there and be miserable. That's it. Just sit there. You don't have to do anything. Right. But the psychological part of it, of feeling uncomfortable and feeling cold, it breaks people's spirits. It breaks them emotionally and mentally. Um, so there's something to be said for that of, of just putting yourself into that. There's little things that I'll do too which aren't necessarily nearly as bad as the cold water immersion for most people, but even just going for a long run. And it's like today I'm going to go for a long run and I'm not going to wear headphones. So today is my day just to be with my own freaking thoughts and I'm just going to go run. And a lot of people are like, I hate running. Yeah. Running's hard. There's no getting around it. Running's hard. 
and we're not going to have any external motivation. It's only going to be internal motivation. It's just me and my thoughts and we're going to go. You know what I mean? So there's a little things that you can do to, um, to challenge yourself, but it's important. It's important for you to have time in your own head and it's important for you to uh, continue to win your own respect and your self-confidence in yourself and your ability to be mentally strong. So I think things like that, like the cold water immersion are, are very beneficial in those regards. Yeah, because it really is a mind game. And I have this tendency to where if I see someone else do it and I and I happen to say to myself, I can do that. I can't live with myself if I don't try it and then do it, because that means I lied to myself. And uh, I don't know if you go through these things, but for me, uh, whether because I. I go to the gym every single day. I get up at 3.45 in the morning. I drive to the gym. I'm there by four and I work out some part of my body. I have a, you know, a, a split that I do where I'm not beating myself to death in the same spots every day, but I do it seven days a week. I don't miss any days. And that alone is uh, like a victory to me because sometimes I don't get to bed until midnight. Well, now I've only got a little, a little under four hours to sleep and I got to get up and I got to go push myself. And every single morning I have the argument with myself. There hasn't been a single day um, where I don't go, you can skip today. It's cool. And then the other side of me is yelling at me going, you're a bitch if you skip today. And so I'm having the <laughs> internal <laughs> argument, you know, that internal argument with myself. And the whole time I, I'm, my mind is screaming, you know, you can skip today. You don't have to go. You're tired. You know, it probably benefits you to have a rest day so you can recover. And I'm trying to uh, justify not going, but I just keep making sure that my feet are moving out the door and I'm getting in the car and I'm opening my gate to drive out and go. Uh, and that all that goes away once I actually get to the gym. But it is an internal struggle every single day to do that. And it was a lot like um, when I did the ice bath for the first time a few days ago. And when I got out, my kids were going, dad, I want to try. And these little fuckers are savages. They just jumped right in up to their chin and they were just, this is awesome. And I had to <laughs> pull them out physically because their lips were turning blue. It was like, okay, you have to get out. You're getting hypothermia, get out. But, you know, I really do respect anybody that can, because it's not really that big of a challenge to go to the gym at 4 a.m. every day. It's not, I'm not doing anything special. But anybody that can go through that level of self-argument to push themselves both physically and mentally, because there's no mental pushing once I get to the gym. It's just all physical. I, I get into the zone. I got my podcast on in my ear, and I zone out and push the weight. But that constant, like you said, it's you sit down and you be miserable, and that's all you got to do. But people who can intentionally make themselves miserable are a very special breed of people. Yeah. And I think, I think on that too, what is really important for, for guys who are doing that kind of stuff, again, like I was talking about with the personal training thing of like, it's not about me anymore. It's about my students or my clients is we have to be careful when we're doing these things to challenge ourselves of what I'm, what I do to challenge myself. I can't put that same expectation on my students or my clients 
And what doesn't seem like a big deal to me, or maybe something does seem like a big deal to me, might not be the same for them. And what we get into a lot is what I see with, with uh, like these different type A personalities are just really intense about everything is someone will be like, yeah, man, I did one minute cold water immersion. And then you're like, oh, dude, that's nothing. I did like fucking 15 minutes. And now all of a sudden you just took them like they they took. And now all of a sudden, like you totally just beat them up and they're like, dude, it took everything I had to do one minute. And now you're talking to me about doing 15 or like you did 20 minutes. Right. And now basically like they were all excited about it. And now unless they do 20 minutes, they don't want to tell you next time because they told you they were excited to tell you that they did one minute. And you just crushed them. You're like, dude, that's not shit. I did 20 minutes. And they're like, okay, so I guess unless I do 20 minutes, I might as well not even tell them anymore because it's not going to impress them or whatever because you can, you're comparing them to you. You know, so um, as as we help people start to get in, get out of their comfort zone, it's it's a hard thing to do. And a lot of times we don't even realize that we're crushing them. We just, we get excited and you say something like that and you, you don't realize you're crushing them. But in the reality, it, it should be like, dude, that is awesome that you did a minute. How did that feel? Like, what were your thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. If you did a minute, I think next time you could definitely do one thirty, and not take them from like, you know, not try to discourage them from, from, from doing that again because you set the bar so high from one minute all the way to 20 minutes you know what i mean um oh yeah and, and uh for for, oh, any, yeah. for anything for trying to get you know you'd say there's someone like david goggins and he's like i run a hundred miles through the freaking desert and you're like well i thought i was excited about running two miles and then i just watched david goggins run 100 miles through 115 degrees like what am i wasting my time for i'm never gonna run that far you know what I mean? It's like, well, that's cool. That's David Goggins. We're not we're not worried about what he can do. We're talking about well, what can you do? Where are you at? Let's take you one step further. You know what I mean? And try not to discourage people or turn them away. Was, we want to keep them on the process of of going in the right direction. Yeah, because I felt pretty crushed when I, it took me five minutes to finally get my torso submerged in the ice water and my six-year-old son went over there yeah. just straight up to his chin and he was like this is awesome daddy and he's gritting his teeth and grinning and laughing and i'm like man it took everything i had to convince my ass to get all the way down in that water and this six-year-old kid just totally crushed me you know but i mean it made me proud as his dad but i was like damn i have to do better next time and then you know just because yeah, i saw sure. him do it but there is something to that uh, I've definitely been guilty of that. I think everyone has of you see someone say, hey, I ran a mile in seven minutes. They go, Shh, I ran it in five this morning as if to completely dismiss this person's accomplishment of hitting seven minutes when before yep. they, that their seven minutes could have been 14 minutes and they could have cut their time in half. And that's one hell of an accomplishment. Yeah. And I, I, 
was going through some training for like how to deal with different personality types. So I was, I was getting educated on how to deal with like borderline personality disorder. Right. And as I was getting coached on this, I, I was starting to think about things a little bit differently. And one of the examples they use is to look, if, if someone, if your kid falls off his bike and scrape, go, Hey man, suck it up. Don't be a little bitch. You know, it's not a big deal. Then what happens is that you don't realize this, but what you just told that kid was your knee hurt. And I'm saying, no, it didn't hurt. That didn't hurt at all. You know what I mean? And now they go, wow, I'm really confused. My knee really hurts, but they just told me, no, it doesn't hurt. This doesn't make sense to me as a little kid brain because my body's telling me this really hurts and I'm upset and they're telling me that I'm not supposed to feel pain about that and I'm not supposed to cry and now I'm confused. So next time I get hurt, I don't tell anybody that I got hurt. And then later on in life, as I continue to get hurt, I internalize everything because last time I told you that I was hurt, you told me to shut up. No, it didn't. Instead of saying something along the lines of, the little kid falls down, hurts his knee, and you're like, ooh, man, are you okay? And they're like, oh, this really hurts. You're like, man, oh, dude. I remember when I fell off my bike and I scratched my knee. It hurt so bad, you know, but it healed up and I was okay. You know, let me see. Are you injured? Like, is it hurt? Are you like, did you think you broke something? No, I don't think I broke something. Yeah, those scrapes really do hurt, don't they? Yeah, but you know what? When I scraped my knee, it healed up. And look, my knee's really good. And I think your knee's going to heal up too, right? Because you're pretty tough, aren't you? Yeah. You know, and then you coach them through it and you're like, and you're going to, why don't you just get up? We'll shake it off. I know it hurts, but I think you can stand up and shake it off. And you build them up and go, hey, I know that hurt, but you're going to make it through this and it's going to be okay. And basically you acknowledge the fact that they were in pain, but we don't need the labor on it. And make it into a big deal. Instead, we acknowledge the fact that it hurt. And now we build them up past that because you are tough. And I know you're tough because you're my son. And you're and you are strong. And look, you see, you can stand up. If you can stand up, you can walk, right? Yeah, I can walk. All right, let's shake it out. Let's get back on the bike, man. I'm a little scared. Yeah, but you're tough. Let's get back on that bike. And then you start, you send them back off. And now their confidence comes up. And there's not they're not confused about what just happened. You know what I mean? And I feel that's what happens. We do. I'm like, holy shit. (laughs) It's like, that's what happens when we do that one upsmanship on people where they're like, yeah, man, I just did a minute of cold water immersion. You're like, oh, one minute. That ain't shit. I do 20. And they're like, oh, dude, because I was freezing. I didn't think I could go any longer than one minute. I thought my body was going to completely shut down, man. And and you, you know what I mean? So you're like, but they're telling me that's not shit because it really felt like a big deal to me. You know what I mean? So it's, it's one of those things that's like, uh, I started noticing how many times we do that guys in our community or just people in general. Like I started like picking up on, I'm like, holy shit, everyone's always doing this, you know? And, uh, it was just an interesting little side note. That is pretty interesting. Um, how do you get people that come to your training? over those mental blocks if that's how they kind of grew up you know um because it takes a lot of confidence and it takes uh 
it's a skill that has to be honed and fostered and developed to be able to react under high stress situations, which is what they're coming to you to prepare for. What process do you take them through if you get someone who, as a client, is completely just unconfident in their ability to be able to handle these situations? Uh, sometimes it really depends on the person and it depends on what they're getting stuck with. So in some cases, it's just, again, getting them to take that first step. You know what I mean? So like for you, if you were sitting there and it took you five minutes to get into the water, once you do get in the water, right, what I might do is while you're in the water, do some things that like make you laugh or, you know, have some jokes or something like that. Um, or give you another task to do to think about while you're in the water so that the experience in the water doesn't seem as scary as you thought it was. And then once afterwards, try to build you back up and kind of do the same thing that we were just talking about with the kid. Like, yeah, dude. So now that you did it, like it wasn't that bad, right? Like it was tough, but you survived. You know what I mean? And get them to acknowledge and say, yeah, you know what? I did survive. I could do that. Like, if I've done it once, I could do it again. And now try to, maybe we don't even get them to go. So for, for you, maybe the goal wasn't to get you to do more than a minute, right? Because the first initial thing is we need to get him in the water longer. I would say for you, it'd be like, Jeff, what? Let's. my goal might be the next time we go back is to get you to get in the water quicker. Instead of five minutes, let's take that down to three minutes. Or let's just go and get right in. And we're still only going to do one minute. But the hurdle wasn't necessarily in the water. The hurdle was getting getting in the water, right? Everyone focuses on this time in the water, right? So it might be the first thing we do is as you go to get in, I would imagine one of the last things you put in the water, I'm taking a wild guess here. One of the first things you probably didn't put in the water was your hands, and what I've found is when trying to get people to go into cold water, if I can get them to put their hands in the water, the process of them getting in the water goes way faster. So I'll take people like when my pool's cold or whatever, when we do the cold water immersion, and I'm trying to bring them in. They'll get into like their thighs and you should get in the water and they bring their hands up like this and like, oh, you know, and it comes to their belly, it comes here and they keep their hands out of the water. They don't get their hands wet. A really weird little psychological thing I picked up on. So as soon as I get into knee deep, if I can go, yeah, dude, just get your hands in the water, just feel it. If I can get their hands in the water, usually I can cut the amount of time I'm making this number up, but like the amount of mental time for them to get in is like almost in half. As soon as their hands go in the water, for some reason, they're it's much easier to get them to commit to just come down up to their neck. So in that case, the goal like you can, you can attack it from different ways, but you look at where are people getting stuck and, and try to uh, find other ways to, to get past that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's really fucking weird that you just said that because I bought one of those hundred gallon stock tanks, right. That you get from tractor supply. And I filled it up with the ice water and I got into it and it was probably a little a bit above my knees, like you said. And then to get in, I put my hands on the side and I basically did like a dip and lowered myself in ass first. And yep. as it got, yeah. And as it got up closer to my torso, I did the, the, the spasm, you know, the hyperventilating spasm when the cold water is hitting you and you're starting to throw your breath out. 
Uh, and it was really yeah. hard until I took my arms and I put my goddamn arms in the water. Once my arms were in the water, it was freaking easy. That is so weird. You mentioned that. I didn't put that together. Yeah. But, yeah. It's just one of these weird things. I've just watched people over the years and I've just studied it. Like when I watch, when I watch people shoot, like, I'm not just watching the shooting stuff. Like I'm, I'm watching everything that they're doing. Cause again, I'm, I'm looking at it somewhat from like a personal trainer standpoint, somewhat from a psychological standpoint, and then also from a shooting instructor standpoint. So I'm just kind of studying people. And one of the things I've noticed when I got in the water, I would do the same thing. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing with my hands? You know? And I picked that up when I was at like, cause I grew up by the beach in New Jersey. And when I'd go in the water, it was always weird. Like you always do this thing and everyone like jump over the waves and the next wave would come in, you jump over the wave, and like no one ever wants to put their hands in the water. I'm like, I'm looking around, I'm like, people, people never want to put their freaking hands in the water. So growing up at the beach, I just start going in, I just start walking in because it might not be you might have to walk out pretty far before you can get to the point where you can actually go underwater. And that's like the worst part. You know, so as soon as I started walking out, I would just like if I go to the beach now, I'll literally walk into the deep, deep water and I'll duck down and I'll just put my hands in the water and just get it out of the way. And now I can jump in. When I used to do a similar thing, when when I was racing BMX bikes, I'd get like my new BMX bike, and I'd and I'd come out of the uh, bike shop, and everyone at the bike shop thought I was crazy. So, whenever I got a new mountain bike, a new BMX bike, or anything like that, I'd walk out the back of the bike shop, and I'd just ghost ride it through the parking lot, and have all the people at the bike shop be like, oh, "What is this freaking maniac doing?" And I just ghost ride the bike. And let it fall over and get a couple scratches. And be like, cool. Now that we got that out of the way, I don't have to worry about the bike getting scratched because it's supposed to be a mountain bike or a BMX bike. And we're supposed to ride this thing hard, you know, and I don't want my bike being so pretty that I'm afraid to ride it hard. Right. So let's just get this out of the way. Now that that's done. Cool. We're ready to go ride. Now I don't have this pretty bike, you know, that I have to be like, oh, you know, I don't want to get a ding on it, you know. Um, but it's just it breaks that mental you know, barrier and it just allows you to move past it and, and get to where you need to be. That's pretty awesome. You know, I think I'm going to treat all of my new cars that way. I just got the car. I'm going to hang the sides up a little bit, put some scratches on it and then I'm good. I'm not going to worry about it. But uh, no, um, it's really interesting that it's little tricks like that, that can push you past, the mental blocks that you don't even realize are there. Um, you know, we got about maybe 20 minutes left. Uh, let's go into a little bit about your nonprofit, uh, the, uh, the canine um, one. I know I want yeah. people to be able to see as much as they can about you and what it is you, uh, you do. And if they can contribute and help in any way, uh, that'll just make the purpose of the show so much better. Very cool. So the charity is called Homefront Canine Project. And when I got out of the Navy, I started getting involved with dogs. <clears throat> and um, I found a lot of benefits for me personally, working with the dogs through my own process, like we were talking about, about that transition. And, you know, there's multiple things going on as far as transitioning what I was doing for work. I was starting a, a more of a spiritual walk. Um as I was working with the dog, doing those other things, I was learning things about myself through the, through the, the relationship with the dog. And, um, 
it got to the point a uh, few years in, you know, I was probably working the dogs for seven years or so by this point, eight years. And I had been helping a lot of other charities for veteran suicide prevention and other things uh, of that nature. And these were great organizations we were supporting. And I just felt like, you know what, with, with what I've been doing with the dogs, I think I can bring something to the table and, um, and help people with, with the service dogs. And one of the things I saw with the service dogs was a lot of guys had great benefit with them, but they got the service dogs after they were already out of the military, after relationships had already fallen apart, after their, you know, uh, have been divorced or had problems with their kids or whatever. And things had just turned into this really bad situation. And now they're getting a service dog in hopes that this is going to help fix things. And I think the service dog plays a great role in, in helping with that, but most of the damage is done and now you're trying to like rebuild. So my idea was, well, how do we get, how do, how do we help battle this? You know, and how, how do we help keep the family together sooner than um, letting it get to this point? So what are, what we're doing now is with Homefront Canine Project is we're training up service dogs and we're putting them in special forces families. So we're finding families that have, that the operator is married, has kids, uh, preferably, and the whole family gets on board. So the wife's on board, the kids are on board, the operator's on board. We train up this dog uh, to be an emotional support dog for the family. In some cases, it doubles as a family protection dog for when they're away, um, if, on, if requested. And essentially what we can do is by putting the dog in early with these families, we can bring the family back together when they get back from deployment. We bring them down to our ranch here. They can do some training with the dog. And now we can help the family start communicating uh, better again in, in with the focus on the dog. So instead of like sitting people down on the couch and being like, hey, your communication sucks. This is how you're talking to each other and your communication is horrible, right? It's... It's not personalized. It's not a personal attack. It's, hey, if you want the dog to do this or the dog's reacting the way it is or the dog's doing what it's doing because you're communicating this, you might not even realize it, but by you doing this, this, and this or your timing or how you're saying it or what your body language is, the dog is going to react in a certain way. And it's very like systematic and in, in, um, not repeatable. It's um, some word I'm looking for. You have no idea what I'm talking about. So uh, it's like very telegraphed. It's very predictable. Like the dog will react a certain way based on certain things. So you can look at this, this predictable behavior based on how the communication is happening within the home or the family. You'll see a direct reaction to the dog and you can go, I can identify what's happening based on how the dog is, is performing. So now we can start to build on the communication within the family, utilizing the dog as the conduit. And then this also gives the operator, you know, this dog that's his buddy and he can, you know, kind of uh, love on and in a certain way that maybe he doesn't do with, with, his, uh, with his brothers or with his family and just open him up a little bit. And then when he leaves, it has... Uh, something for the kids and for the for the wife feels a little bit more protected because they have this dog there and it's good for the kids. So um, what we found is just it's been a really good experience for everyone involved. And um, 
and it's really helped uh, bring some of these families together. You know, for one example, we had a Navy SEAL family and he's he adopted his sister's uh, son and daughter. She got in some trouble or whatever and and they adopted these kids. And, and there was always this kind of this tension there between him and, and, and his new son because the dude's like, you're not my dad, you know, and it was just this pressure. And when we brought the dog to this family, right, we were doing some of the agility work and we were going to some parks out in town and we're like, yeah, man, so here's how we can do some of the agility work with the dog and this and that. And after this, they're like, dude, we should build like a jungle gym in the backyard like this. So him and his stepson go and they start this project of building this this uh, this jungle gym, this dog jungle gym in the backyard, right? And they go out there and they're doing some training with the dog, you know, having them go over some of these obstacles and balance beams and all this. And he reached back out to us. He's like, dude, I've had the biggest breakthrough for the last, how long was he there for? Like a year prior? Two or three years he was there before they got the dog. And they had, he's like, dude, in the time that we built this obstacle course, this was like the first thing that like I was able to really do with him. And after this and working with the dog and taking the dog for some walks and, and playing with the dog on the obstacle course and working through some of these problems together of how do we get the dog to do this, this, and this. All of a sudden his son, his stepson opened up to him and just like poured all this stuff out. And now the relationship, it was like the conduit to open up that door. And now they have an entirely different relationship that the dog put them in a position to where they could work on a project together, problem solve some things together, you know, work together. And now the relationship is completely different. And, um, you know, we've had a number, a number of stories like that. And that's kind of the stuff that we're trying to do with, with the organization. Man, I knew that dogs make everything better, but that is absolutely incredible. Yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. So where can people go if they the awesome want to thing help was, donate or contribute to the canine, the Homefront Canine Project? The website is Homefront Canine. Uh, canine is the letter and number. Homefrontcanine.org. Homefrontcanine.org. Yeah. Or you can search hash, hashtag. Yep. So that's it right there. The The actual spelling has one space between home and front. So it's two words, but Homefront Canine Project. And then the website. Yep. That's it right there. Gotcha. Homefrontcanine.org. Yep. Here's a. Uh, so I had a kilo. Oh, kilo's camera's away. Oh, that's hey, kilo. Huh? What's up, dude? But so, but yeah, it's a it's a really cool uh, organization, and um, it's been great to work with with these different families. Yeah, I can imagine. I know that uh, there is a sense of brotherhood and camaraderie across the entire military community. Um, like I told you, you know, in the green room before we started recording, my 17 year old son just shipped off to basic training uh, this past Monday. Uh, and I was trying to explain that to him, that as as close as he is with me, his brothers, his mom, uh, his sister. There's going to be a time, especially during the, the bond building 
uh, process of basic training. And then, of course, anything that he has to go through uh, that is like a crucible uh, with his brothers uh, and his battle buddies, uh, he's going to develop a much deeper and closer relationship with them where it's, it's going to feel like your loyalty is kind of stretched. Like who am I more loyal to this guy over here wearing the same uniform standing beside me or the people that live in my, you know, my childhood home. And it's a real, it's a real thing. Those kind of bonds being developed uh, between guys who will endure a crucible together. And I think this step that you've taken with helping them not just by you being there for them while you guys are on deployment together or in training together, but helping them manage about the one thing that will destroy them internally uh, with their family and creating that unit cohesion within the family. Uh, I cannot be more impressed than I am right now that you have put this organization together and what you've been able to accomplish with it. If it wasn't going to jack up my microphone, I'd start clapping right now. That's it. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's it's trying to give it's trying to give a ki- the family a common thread, right? One of the guys who we had out here, he's uh, a combat controller. He's been with them for over twenty years. He's done uh, multiple deployments, like lots and lots of time with Dev Group, uh, the SEAL Team Six guys. Um, and he's, he's now in charge of all the training for the combat controllers and stuff like that. And when he came out and got his his dog, him and his wife were here and they went for a walk. And for me, it didn't seem like a big deal. They took the dog for a walk and they were walking around the lake. And I, and after they were here on the second day, when they were taking the dog for a walk around the lake on the property, you know, he was, him and her were holding hands and she came in later and was, was crying to myself and the vice president of the organization. And she was like, that's the first time in over 20 years, my husband's ever just gone for a walk with me. And because now they had a dog, they wanted to go walk the dog and it gave them a reason to go for a walk. You know, where before it was like, I don't have time to go for a walk. And, um, and it was just a huge breakthrough for their relationship with that. And that, and for us looking at it, it was like, oh yeah, look, they're walking around the lake, but we had no idea for her. This is like this huge thing, you know, um, because he would never do that with her. So, uh, little, little breakthroughs like that, you know, something that silly as it sounds as of, you know, a dog, but again, when you're, when the approach is different because it's not a, it's not a pet. You know, so there's a different approach to it with with how the program is designed and whatnot and the different expectation of what we're trying to achieve uh, than just having like a general pet. So with that, you know, it kind of sets the stage a little differently and we're, we're seeing great things happen. Man, I love everything that you just said about that. Yeah, it was cool. It was cool. So. We're getting ready to wrap up here. Uh, if people want to contact you or organizations want to contact you for either training through uh, your website at fullspectrumwarriors.com 
or the homefrontk9.org uh, to get involved in that program as clients or recipients of uh, the canines themselves. Um, walk uh, as quick as you can, just kind of walk through that process about how that will go. Yeah, for sure. If you guys want to go to fullspectrumwarriors.com, we have a couple different ways you can train with us, or you can just reach out and get, get in contact with us there via the email on the contact page. You can submit to do a private retraining request. If you want to come out here and do a private training experience with uh, you or you and a couple of your friends or family, like if you want to come out here and stay on the property in our cabin with your family and come do training, we can set up a private training experience for you. We have public classes that are listed on the on the website. We have an online university. So maybe you can't travel out here, but you want to get some of the knowledge. You can subscribe to the online university and train with us online. Um, and then for the social media stuff, you can reach out to us on the social media pages. And then for Homefront Canine Project, you can go to that and you can submit a request uh, for um, for a dog or, or if you're looking to get a service dog, if it's something that's not within what we can do or timeline, we can always connect you with other charities that we work with that also do service dogs that are doing great things um, to help find you, you know, the dog that you need. But yeah, easiest way is just go to fullspectrumwarriors.com and then you can find out what is the right fit for you and reach out that way. That's awesome, man. Rich, thank you so much for coming on the show, brother. It's good to finally see you again after, I think it's been over a year since you and I last spoke. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a little while. I'm glad we got circled back. Yeah, man. I'm always looking forward to see how uh, uh, this goes. I've been watching your journey with the way you're training the uh, law enforcement agencies on your Instagram. Uh, if you're interested in following Rich, you can see it right there on the screen. Uh, Full Spectrum Warrior USA is the at name on Instagram. Reach out, connect with him, uh, go to his website. Also, if you are interested in a service dog or contributing to the charity in any way that you possibly can. It is called the Homefront Canine Project. And that right there on the screen is the correct link. H-O-M-E-F-O-R-N-T-K-9, the letter and the number, dot org, for those of you only listening to the episode. And this has been episode six of the perimeter with former Navy SEAL. Well, I guess you're always going to be a Navy SEAL because the Navy didn't make you one, right? with Navy SEAL Rich Graham, uh, a full-spectrum Warriors. And Rich, again, thank you so much for coming on the show, brother. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. All right, for those of you watching, for those of you listening, be sure to like, share, and subscribe to the channel, to the podcast. The podcast audio version is available on 10 different platforms, all the way from Spotify to iTunes. Be sure to make sure that you are subscribed so you get notified when all of these episodes drop. And that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all for watching. Thank you all for listening. And as always, make sure that you defend the perimeter.